You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, powering the transition to a resilient, renewable, decentralised energy system of the future. And SolarAy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of Energy Insiders. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me as usual is David Leach from ITK Services. David, how are you? I'm well, thanks, Giles. Most of our listeners are not going to have COVID uh, looking at the statistics and I think more and more we're turning our mind to uh, the post-COVID world now. Yes, well, we'll be stuck at home for a little while longer, I'm sure, as um, a gradual um, release from the... um, from the constraints um, on our movement and our activities are um, are, are gradually relaxed. But look, um, in the energy sector, um, things do move on. And I guess one of the big questions for people is the planning for what happens next. Now, we've talked an awful lot about the blockages for wind and solar farms, in fact, any sort of energy infrastructure investment, simply because there hasn't been enough infrastructure investment. And Today, we or this week, we actually caught up with the head of one of the major infrastructure firms, Transgrid, um, Paul Italiano. Um, we've had the energy networks before, David, but this time we, uh, we've got the, the head of um, one of the main trans- transmission providers. Yes, we had uh, Transgrid. It's terrific to hear, Paul. We had uh, uh, an interview with Transgrid's uh, planning uh, manager last year as well, uh, just before I um, got ill, frankly. Uh, but it's great to hear from Paul, and it's just uh, brought my focus back again on how completely rooted the planning process is in Australia. But let's we'll get on to it. Paul probably doesn't say that. He's far too polite. And, uh, but, uh, but let's face it. Look, I think he is. <laughs> Look, uh, he is. And um, But let's, let's have a listen now to our uh, interview with Paul Italiano, the CEO of Transgrid. Paul Italiano from Transgrid, thank you very much for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. Thank you very much. Look, uh, we talk a lot about networks on this podcast for obvious reasons. Um, It's important um, to transport electrons from one place to another, of course, Um, but it's great to actually have a owner or a, a chief executive of a network to join us on the grid. And a lot to talk about. There's a lot in the planning for transmission links and upgrades and the creation of new new renewable energy zones. But let's start with the announcement that's actually uh, prompted this particular get together. And that is the upgrade of the link between New South Wales and Queensland, um, what is known as the Q&I link. Can you tell me what's actually been approved here and why it's so significant? So the upgrade was identified by AEMO as being a critical improvement to the grid to manage a number of things, partially the impending withdrawal of coal generation in the Hunter Valley, and also to better manage the stability of the system with the emergence of new renewable generation in and around New England and in the Central West. Uh, Finally, there is more energy flow between Queensland and New South Wales as a result of the development or evolution of the NEM. Um, There's wholesale price differential between the two markets. So the consumer is often unable to access the lowest priced energy because the interconnector is maxed out 
and if there was more capacity, they'd be able to get access to lower wholesale market prices, whether that's northbound energy into Queensland or southbound energy into New South Wales. So it's a, it, there are a variety of drivers for this. Um, grid re resilience, um, renewable support, and wholesale price activity. I guess one of the big questions for a lot of these transmission upgrades, and I guess it's the subject of you know great debate amongst uh, the various players in the market who have you know certain vested interests, and also a, um, a, a a problem for the modelers and the regulators who investigate this and work out whether it's worth the money. I guess one of the big questions, though, for the broader public is that. Do these new upgrades and these new links, do they serve just to reinforce the position of the existing fossil fuel fleet? Or do they really, as is often said, actually facilitate the transition to renewables that most people accept as being um, irreversible and, um, and, and likely to happen quite quickly? Uh, that's a quite a broad question. So <clears throat> uh, in this particular case, no, we have a fairly robust energy market regulator and we go through a very rigorous regulatory process which is a good thing it ensures that what we're doing is in the best interests of the consumers and the AER discharge their obligations extremely well and so we can be this has been through a regulatory test and consumers can take confidence in that that this investment has satisfied the regulator as being an appropriate deployment of capital for their energy needs. Um, we've got a- David? I'm oh, sorry. Yeah, so, sorry, Paul. So, I, I mean, I, I guess I want to think about what you've just said in the context of the uh, broader transmission spending that Transgrid may be um, exposed to. If I count en Energy Connect, uh, this Q&I link that you're talking about, uh, today, the, the bigger Q&I link, which has entered a planning process, Hume link, and then there's the Kerrang upgrade, which uh, potentially has quite a bit of New South Wales exposure. I can see broadly around $5 billion of total capital expenditure and, you know, over two thirds of that relates would be Transgrid. And then I turn around and look at your balance sheet and see that you've already got like $5.5, $5.7 billion of debt. And I look at the, finally, uh, when I look at it, the return on equity that you get under the regulator at the moment is about seven and a quarter percent. But if I put in today's bond rates, it might fall to five and a half percent. And I just wonder, even before I get to the, to the moves that Victoria and New South Wales are potentially taking to derogate, and this is a very long question, from, from the, um, the broader planning process, I just wondered how you felt about investing all of that equity um, as, as things stand and, and whether you're happy with the way it's been done given the, um, you know, sort of broader rethink uh, about transmission investment, which I hope we can come on to. Yeah, that is a long question um, and, and a really difficult one to answer in this economic environment. Uh, as it stands, we've been a strong supporter of the EMO ISP project. We see that as a plan for the system overall that's been conducted by an independent third party that doesn't have a commercial interest in any particular outcome. 
And that's been important for us to separate ourselves from what can often be seen as promoting a solely vested interest solution um, for the benefit of shareholders. So we, we strongly support the notion of an independently developed integrated system plan and that, that then they will weigh up the various interests of generation and networks and large scale, small scale. Uh, the projects that you've talked about there are all listed on the integrated system plan and they've all been prioritised given various deadlines. ISP2 is due to be released sometime in July. Um, that's going to be, that, that'll be a difficult document for them to put together in this uh, uh, sort of environment of uncertainty, but I'd encourage them to continue to do so because having nothing out there is probably even uh, increasing the uncertainty. Um, we, however, from our position, we are a, a, a con consortium of private infrastructure owners. We understand our obligation is to invest in infrastructure assets as and when they are required and make sense for consumers and the market overall. And there is a program of work that's been identified. We stand ready to invest in that. We don't just see that as a commercial opportunity. We see that as a moral obligation. And the investors, when they went through the process of buying Transgrid, anticipated that there would need to be a reconfiguration of the Australian electricity system to accommodate the transition from uh, older forms of generation to new forms of generation. As it turns out, that transition is happening faster than people had predicted, a lot of people had predicted, but in line with the expectations of the security holders of Transgrid, they'd done their analysis and they anticipated that there would be a, an, a a need to make some changes. Um, and so this is perhaps a little earlier than we had anticipated, but not unexpected. So we're, we're there to look at it uh, from, we're there to look at it, we're there to, to invest and we're, we're ready to do so. Um, now, there are some challenges in the current economic environment and there are some conversations in the current regulatory environment because the regulatory environment hasn't been designed with this kind of scale of change being foremost in their minds. But there's been really good dialogue with regulators and really good dialogue with policymakers around how best to approach that. And we're still in the middle of that dialogue. So uh, we're, we're hopeful that it'll come up with a, a really good answer for everybody along the, the um, supply chain and for consumers as well. So uh, it, I think it's going really, really well. That, that dialogue is going really well. It's very constructive. It's a tough challenge for policymakers and a tough challenge for regulators because it's an unprecedented volume of investment and it's very difficult economic times. Um, we, we've got, we have a philosophy at Transgrid, unless we can see a clear benefit for consumers and the market, we don't want to invest in it. There's no point in us promoting a project as being necessary or needed only for it to be 
underwater on day one for consumers because we'll be sitting on that asset for 20, 30, 40, 50 years and constantly being confronted with accusations of gold plating, unnecessary investment. And that, that's not the reputation that our shareholders want to have. They, they are investors in infrastructure assets globally. They have very little to gain out of um, developing a reputation for, being, for, for imposing unnecessary investment on markets. That's totally counterproductive for them. So sure. we, we welcome regulatory oversight. We welcome the dialogue. We're, we're ready to invest. It's a difficult environment at the moment. Um, so I, I know, Giles, I, I'm kind of jumping the gun here on Giles, and for which I apologise in advance. But I did want to come back to the New South Wales Renewable Energy Zone and just quickly, I mean, Transgrid is not actually... Uh, formally involved in that process and I there's some doubt about it but uh, in theory the federal government's going to provide some money and then New South Wales government has said that it's going to as far as I understand it auction off uh, spots in the in that REZ and presumably having the transmission paid for in a different way to the current open access regime I, I just wondered if you could briefly mention if Transgrid's involved in that or either now or in the future, and what you think about it. Look, Transgrid will be involved because we are the incumbent transmission operator in New South Wales. So in any solution, no matter what, it will need to be connected up with the grid that's currently on the asset base at Transgrid. So there'll be at least that level of involvement. Um, we see ourselves as a transmission asset owner, not a... a a regulated asset base owner. So we've, we're developing quite a large contestable asset base as well. And we're, we're doing, we're delighted with how that startup business has gone since we acquired the company. Um, so if there's an opportunity for us to make a, a, a commercially sensible deployment of capital in that, we'd be ha very, very happy to support both the state and federal government. Um, and to the extent that there is a, a regulated component of it, all of what I said earlier applies. We'll go through an appropriate level of regulatory oversight and whatever the uh, whatever is determined to be sensible to put on a regulated asset base is, is what will go on. A, regulated asset base. Um, your, early, your, your comment, what do I think about it? At, at the moment, the one of the features of the NEM in Australia is that there is a lot of um, uh, intervention. Um, so in different markets, there are different uh, interventions and there's QRET and VRET. There's no... Uh, RET in, in New South Wales. Um, there's a recognition that there's uh, a need for renewable energy capacity to be added to the system. When, when uh, we took on the asset, there was about 4,000, 5,000 megawatts of capacity on the system. And we're rapidly running out of that. And in fact, 
uh, we've put on 4,000 megawatts of renewable generation in the four years that we've owned the company. So pretty much the, the capacity of the system is exhausted or close to being exhausted. And evidence of that is what's happening in the so-called Western Murray precinct, where the, the, there are issues with people connecting through and the, the, the way they work in combination in, in an area of the system that historically had spare capacity. So, um, you know, I think the New South Wales government has identified that issue and made a determination that this is how they would like to go about solving that problem. And uh, I think that that makes sense. I've got a, um, a, another broad question. Um, Transgrid is a transporter of electrons, so I guess it's reasonably um, sort of you know sort of neutral on the source of those electrons. And you mentioned the integrated system plan being put together by AEMO, and the draft points to a share of renewables of between say seventy and ninety percent by twenty forty, depending on the various scenarios. Is that the sort of level of renewables that you, as a transporter of electrons, are com is comfortable with? I mean, do you think that's um, inevitable? Do you think we can go further? Do you think we can go quicker? Uh, it's an interesting point. So, firstly, you described us as a transporter of electrons, and uh, actually. Our responsibility is to provide a stable platform for the market to operate. Um, so yes, I should have moving, added that. <laughs> moving electrons is an important part of what we do, but a huge amount of what we do is ensuring stability of the system and ensuring resilience. So there is a, a lot of activity that we do in that space. The second is uh, we're a little agnostic or ambivalent as to what the um, source of electrons are. So there's two bits. There's a temporal component to that element. The first is in the, in the immediate term, that is absolutely true. We have an obligation to manage the system. We have to keep it stable and we have to make sure the market's functioning well and we're doing our job and not adversely affecting the efficiency of the market. And to that extent, we're agnostic. Longer term is a different question. The, the longer term issue there is we are making investments for 50 years or 60 or 70 years. We, it would be irresponsible for us to be playing a card of saying, well, the rules in 2020 said these were um, that these electrons were uh, no different. We, we have to look forward at what the world is going to look like. And I mean the world, not the, not the uh, energy system. We need to look forward at what does the world look like and what is going to be expected by consumers in 2050 or 2060. If we put an asset in the ground today, consumers in 2070 will be using it. So we have to have a view on that. Now, if, we're, if we are relying on, if we're putting in a, an investment with a substantial capacity, we're relying on that capacity being used. And if we think it's being used by a technology that doesn't have a 50-year time horizon to it, then that changes the way we view that asset. 
if for any reason that investment ceases being used in 20 years time, we have 60% of the value of our investment undepreciated. And, and, our, and to say that we would be agnostic is to say um, that we would be expecting consumers to pay for an undepreciated asset that's not being used for the next 30 years of its life. Um, I, I, don't, I don't think that's an accurate... So we can't think that way. So we have to look at it and we have to, we have to put different risk ratings on uh, different forms of generation and we have to look at them through our eyes and say, uh, at some stage, you know, the idea that the existing regulatory regime will still be in place in 50 years' time is, is pretty unusual. You go back 50 years and you would never say that. So we've got to look through the regulatory regime and we've got to ensure that the assets that we're putting in the ground to the best of our ability we are confident are still going to be performing a valuable economic function right through to the end of their economic life. And so, David? Oh, yeah. So you, you mentioned, Paul, uh, about system strength. Uh, I mean, one of the con um, regulatory sort of issues that comes up is the do no harm rule, for instance. Uh, and uh, there's a, a school that I belong to that says that uh, um, system strength is really belongs with the transmission operator, not but not at the generator level, and it should be your responsibility uh, in New South Wales case to 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 run how system strength is is managed and the amount of investment. And then uh, the follow-on question from that is: it's it's perfectly clear to me that inertia in the system is going to keep falling, and that we need to move away from a um, inertia driven grid to one where the control systems are, are much more based around smart inverters for want of a, 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 a I could use other terms. I just wondered, uh, firstly, do, do you disagree with what I say? And secondly, what's Transgrid actually doing to move this part of the debate along? So I don't disagree with what you're saying, because the model that you are proposing is a legitimate option and an option that's put in place in some markets around the world. Um, the challenge for us is whether or not that option fits with our overall uh, model for managing the energy economy and whether it and, and how we ensure that the solution that's put in place by the transmission operator in your model is the uh, sensible solution and historically in Australia we've preferred where there are alternatives to allow the market to determine what the efficient solution is so you get a, an economically efficient outcome um, rather than moving to a sort of centralized solution and have that regulated so the the idea you've come up with is your your position's completely valid um I, i'm i've seen markets like that around the world and they're actually doing some really innovative things and you could argue producing lower prices from the system overall um, and and particularly in markets like that what you see is the much greater deployment of large-scale batteries 
and the use of those batteries for multiple functions. So you're getting the, the economic advantage of economy of scope out of them. Um, but, and that's kind of something you don't see a great deal of in Australia, um, particularly without government subsidy. Uh, but on the other hand, trying to put that kind of model in for the transmission system into the overall economic model for the NEM is actually trying to bang a square peg into a round hole. So it has much greater implications for our regulatory approach overall. So we, what we're doing, to answer your second question, is we're, we're looking around the world for precedent on positive things, positive changes that are being made to power systems. And we are trying to find a way to make them work in the Australian regulatory environment. So we look at it through the lens of the, the that, that framework that you talk about is the means, not the end. The end is the power system that's produced. So uh, we, we, take a, we take the optimistic view, there must be a way of achieving this outcome through the existing framework. And if it doesn't get through the framework, then it doesn't meet the required regulatory standards. Um, if, we find, if we think that's unfair, and, and it's, that's less often than people would imagine. If we think that's unfair, we'll take that up directly with the regulator and put our case on the table um, and, and have a constructive dialogue. Paul, I'm very conscious of the time, and uh, we thank you for your time um, with um, Energy Insiders podcast. And I think um, I, th I think we do have to wrap it, wrap it up there. So, look, thank you very much for um, talking with us today. You're welcome. Thank you very much for the time. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Paul. Cheers. And that was Paul Italiano, the CEO of Transgrid. Um, as you said, uh, David, um, much too polite. And um, one of those interviews where we probably found out a bit more after the formal interview finished and we're just having a bit of a chat than we did in the middle of the interview. But um, I'm kind of interested um, in his description of square pegs in round holes. And I don't think that's quite the way you're supposed to put up poles and wires. And I guess that's part of the frustration for the whole process over the last few years. Well, look, I'm going to draw attention to Project Energy Connect uh, for our listeners that don't know. That's the proposed transmission link between South Australia and New South Wales, where the first document for that was released in 2016, the first planning document, shortly after the South Australia uh, major islanding event. Uh, and yet today we're still arguing and modelling about it here in the middle of 2020. I mean, uh, using input cost assumptions from 2016. I mean, <laughs> I'm glad we didn't fight World War II on that basis. It would have been over before we'd finished the modelling. That's right, yes. And, um, and look, it's, and it's interesting. I mean, a lot of people pres presume in the project Energy Connect, but there's actually another couple of hurdles for it to go through. So um, it's not a done deal at all. No, it isn't a done deal. And why would it be? I mean, the whole process about the RIT test, which uh, Paul doesn't mention, is is everyone is looks so gentle about this because the RIT test is designed to ensure that all the consumers are better off. And, and who could ever argue with that? But it amounts to a free lunch. And not only that, uh, you know, and of course, we know how many free lunches there are uh, around the place. I, I, I haven't uh, had one, I don't think, since I was weaned off the mum's tit, and that wasn't yesterday. 
Um, uh, but uh, uh, the, the, the real point about it is that it doesn't take into account the greater needs of uh, an integrated planning system. It's just so the amount of, and if you do try to take it into account, the amount of modelling you get becomes so totally complex that you're more or less completely recreating the ISP and uh, again, and so the, the, the whole stuff, the whole uh, one of the points that Paul made to us afterwards uh, is that you know only in Australia is transmission planning done via this RIT process, which uh, it, it, most of the inter inter region transmission or interstate transmission in the Australian context is um, mostly done around the rest of the world by negotiation between all of the parties, where you can consider all of these things in hopefully a rational way. Uh, and and get a decent outcome. The bottom line here in Australia is that there hasn't, but there's been virtually no transmission or very very little built since the uh, national electricity market was created. That's what really amounts to. Well, that's right. Yes, and, and talk about modelling. Um, we um, and, and the ISP. Um, we've just sort of um, recently got word that there's actually amendments to that modelling. And, and that, look, I mean, we're drawing up big projects like that you know there's um, all sorts of inputs that people don't um, agree with and um, I think that's certainly the case of the ISP and AEMO have actually come out with a letter to stakeholders this week pointing out that um, that transmission costs have gone up since um, their draft ISP the cost of pumped hydro have gone up from what they assumed since the cost of uh, since their draft ISP the cost of battery storage has actually fallen quite significantly the cost of gas 30 to 40 percent 34, 40%, quite interesting. So um, a whole lot of those things are, um, are sort of changing all the time, which I guess points to the fact that modelling is just a bit of a best guess and just scenarios rather than predictions. And um, Hydro Tasmania came out last week with another big boost to their um, plan for pumped hydro and a transmission link and just sort of saying, well, let's not um, take too close say um i mean they're also sort of having a big argument with, about modeling with the uh with the writ, whole writ process and with the aema but um they may not be too much favored by this um, increase in transmission costs and pumped hydro costs um as i imagine the case would be for snowy 2.0 look every, everyone's going to be uh unhappy about it um, there has to be a national um, like I said, you can't build a transmission line in 2020 based on costs that were decided in input costs for coal and gas that were decided in 2016. As, any, as endless articles on your website and anywhere else have pointed out, Giles, um, on Renew Economy, the fact is coal and gas prices have, have dropped dramatically and so have electricity prices even compared with a year ago. Uh, none of us know how long that's going to last. I mean, up in China, electricity consumption's actually had quite a strong recovery in March, but their local coal production there is much is, is, is up on last year, so they lead less imported coal. And that feeds through back to Australia, and the low oil price feeds into low gas prices. And, and, and as I say, electricity prices, like demand in Australia in the NEM last week, was virtually unchanged on a year ago, so much for COVID. But but electricity prices, pool prices were under $40 all week long. And you had a story about the amount of negative prices. So the point is modelling is never, um, is always done with an agenda. It's always done with assumptions that suit the uh, case. And if you go and nitpick the modelling like Frontier Economics did for the Australian Energy Regulator in the case of this uh, project Interconnect, you'll always be able to find a, pro a problem with it. And, 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 and the modelling will never get you I don't believe, to the actual broader picture of whether the transmission is, in the end, a good thing, as broadly defined, 
for for the Nen and for the future. That's my mm. that's my gripe on about it. No, well said, David. I'm not going to argue with that. Um, just look at, on, on another issue of modelling of a of a different um, 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 so on a different case. Uh, we got news last week um, at the end of Friday that the five solar farms that are being heavily constrained in Western Victoria in, in in the West Murray region, so four solar farms in Victoria and one solar farm in Broken Hill, which had their output curtailed by half or cut in half, basically. They could only use half their inverters installed at each solar farm site because of assumed oscillation, uncontrolled oscillation problems and voltage issues in the event that a transmission line had to um, had failed. So um, that went on for about seven months. Um, SMA, the inverter people whose technology was common to all five solar farms, um, a coincidence rather, rather than a causation, we are told, uh, went ahead and developed some new firmware and after a week long of tests, that's finally been resolved. But um, once again, that comes back down to um, yet more issues about infrastructure and in, insufficient infrastructure um, investment in the region. Um, they're going to have And it's to more than that, uh, it, it, Giles. It comes back, I think, to a, a, a more fundamental problem of uh, insufficient attention's been paid to the change in, in inertia. As I, you've heard me talk about this before, even though I know nothing about it, as I keep saying, our, but the tra- the change in the control schemes. We are. It's you know all you had to do was develop new firmware for the inverters. Similarly, over in South Australia, when we had all these wind generators go out, and ir- irrespective of the legalities, it was basically the firmware in the in the in the generators as to whether they were were designed to ride through trips or not or whether they were allowed to these are all software things that can be achieved relatively easy and 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 which will be developed a lot more in the future but we need to start planning for a system which is going to have more inverter control and i don't see that integrated planning at that but perhaps this new aemo report that looks at the uh, small scale side of things and uh, behind the meter and how it integrates, which is a that's due this week, is it? Now, this is the renewable integration, um, yes, um, assessment. And I think it's not just behind the meter, I think it's large scale wind and solar as well. So it's going to be interesting to see that will be due on Thursday, I understand. So um, we'll be keeping a look out for that and um, hopefully maybe even sort of bring in an interview with one of the key AEMO people on this podcast next week. Uh, yes, so I'm. Um, that, that's all important. Giles, um, what else has been happening? Yes, well, I just want to point readers to your excellent um, analysis about the aluminium industry, and um, and it was quite an interesting point that you made about um, energy, electricity costs in Australia. And you pointed out that everyone has, always assumes that China's got the cheapest electricity costs, and you point out, well, that's probably not quite the case right now because Australia is actually going below there, as you said before. We're not too sure how long they'll go this low, but it's um, it's not just electricity costs that, that that's the problem for the aluminium industry. And um, you make a case that wind and solar can play quite an important role in possibly extending the life of this industry in Australia. Well, it's 10% of demand. And my point is that now is the chance, uh, um, you know, the Portland uh, smelter, which, I mean, basically aluminium for our listeners is 10% of electricity demand in Australia. And aluminium smelters uh, are always threatening to shut down unless they get a good price for their electricity. Uh, And uh, mostly in Australia, that price has been subsidised. Mind you, it's been more subsidised nearly everywhere else overseas. But the 
But in the end, aluminium, for one reason or another, it's something that governments love and they're prepared to subsidise it. But in my opinion, uh, it's time for the governments to think about the actually broader role of aluminium in electricity, not just as a source of demand, but uh, uh, as a way of integrating more renewables into the system, as a source of demand that manages the phase out of uh, coal plants like uh, your lawn in the first instance, um, and, and potentially, potentially the ability of aluminium smelters if they were more vertically integrated, that is if they owned the electricity, and this is really I think the key point in my note, at least as I see it, if they're more vertically integrated, they could be much more flexible in the way that they produce aluminium. There's a technical debate about it, but as to whether you could damage the aluminium pots, aluminium's made in pots with lots and lots of uh, electricity going into them. Uh, but uh, if you could just uh, turn tone down the amount of electricity going in for a couple of hours a day, and this may be possible, uh, then um, uh, you could use that to reduce peak demand every single day, pretty much, or close to it. And this means you could integrate wind and solar into producing baseload electricity in a way that's probably not possible in nearly any other industry. And I just think it's something that uh, it's time for the government to look at this and say, well, in return for these subsidies, uh, let's have a, have a look at uh, how you guys can contribute and how we can all benefit from it. I do recommend you have a look at that article by David um, on the website on Renew Economy. And also there's another couple of good ones too from um, guest uh, writer Kitan Joshi, um, who's known uh, for publishing elsewhere and um, former playing a key role in the industry. Um, he's now overseas, but he's written a couple of really nice pieces, one about the fossil fuel industry response to the COVID-19 virus. And also he's had a look at Michael Moore's new film, uh, which attacks renewables and um quite delightfully sort of slices of slices it apart so i would recommend that as um some reading material um david i think that's about it for my, my, this week it, it, it is it is giles it is and michael moore reminds me of a, a fund manager who who has one success on his first trade and thereafter thinks he's a genius you know um uh, it's like michael moore he wrote uh, one good book which i did quite enjoy and 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 thinks that he's now got the answer to all the world's problems uh but anyway there we go i suppose we're all a bit like that yes anyway okay well no quite agree okay look i think that's a bit of a wrap for today um for this week i do want to thank our sponsors solarate energy and evergen um i want to thank all the listeners um who, who listen in um do check out our other podcast the solar insiders podcast and the driven podcast do please leave a review um probably best on the apple platform if that's your favorite podcast platform and uh, we'll be back again next week bye for now Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, a market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises the performance of residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen software is powering the energy of the future. Energy Insiders is also sponsored by SolarAy Energy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring. They're the smart choice for consumers and business. Visit solaray.com.au and secure your energy future today.